You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are really thrilled to again be able to welcome Apurva Mandavili to be with us today. Welcome, Apurva, and thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me. Apurva is a reporter for the New York Times focusing on science and global health. She currently covers the coronavirus pandemic vaccinations, the World Health Organization, CDC, FDA. She's the 2019 winner of the Victor Cohn Prize for Excellence Medical Science Reporting. And Apurva, you've been super busy lately. I have. You've been writing furiously on monkeypox, among many other things. So we're going to focus most of our conversation today on monkeypox. I know you've got a lot of other work coming forward. We won't ask you to divulge what big new surprises are on the horizon, but there's a lot out there to talk about. Why don't we just start with the big picture? What's the status of this outbreak and how, how serious is it? How dangerous is it? How alarmed should we be? We probably shouldn't be alarmed, but we should be concerned. What we're looking at right now is about a thousand cases in about 30 countries worldwide. And we should expect to see those numbers go up, not just in the United States, but everywhere, really, as you know, doctors and patients become more aware of what it looks like and what it is. We will probably see those numbers climb quite a bit. It is unusual and of concern because we've never really seen this kind of human-to-human spread of monkeypox, especially in countries where it's not endemic. So all of those things are unusual and something to watch. These thousand cases you're referencing, these are all outside of the 13 African endemic countries, correct? Depending on whom you ask, it's nine countries that uh, the monkeypox is endemic in. But yes, these are all countries outside of those endemic areas. And we have seen occasionally cases, you know, even here in the United States, we had a case in Texas. We had a whole bunch of cases actually in 2003. So we have seen these cases before, but nothing on the scale. And one of the things that's really unusual about it this time is that we're seeing it present through sexual contact. Usually we hear about it from somebody being in close contact with a rodent or even a pet, but this time it's person to person at quite a scale that we haven't seen before. And there may be important things happening in DRC or Nigeria or elsewhere also in terms of rising case counts, right? Absolutely. I mean, the WHO's official count for how many cases we've seen in Africa, in those countries in 2022 is 44. But if you look at the suspected cases, it's 1,400. So that just tells you, you know, how difficult it is to confirm these cases, especially when you don't have great testing capacity, which is the case in most of these countries. And also, it looks a lot like other things. You know, it looks a lot like chickenpox. It looks a lot like other rashes that people can get. And if you're not really trained in how to distinguish monkeypox from those other things, you could be getting misclassified. So some of this is probably an underestimate. Some of it is probably an overestimate. We just really don't know what the exact numbers are. Now, a lot of the attribution, when we started seeing cases in UK, Portugal, elsewhere in Europe, Uh, They were associated with, in some respects, with large raves in the spring, very, very large raves. And and it was thought that there was a dominant feature of this was men having sex with men in these gatherings. And and that's where people began to think about this as being transmitted or the, the, the outbreak being driven by sexual intimate contact 
among infected folks. But what else accounts for why we're seeing this now? I mean, we know that smallpox was eradicated in 1980. We know that smallpox vaccinations for the United, in the United States, which had very long-lasting impacts, ceased in 72. We stopped the military vaccinations in 91. What is it that's going on at a deeper level that might account for suddenly seeing these clusters appear across Europe and now in the United States? Well, you know, you just mentioned we stopped smallpox vaccinations and smallpox itself was eradicated. And monkeypox is very closely related. So as you see population immunity go down and you see immunity at an individual level go down, let's say somebody was vaccinated a very long time ago and they've you know, their immunity has really waned. So both those levels, individual and population level, you're seeing a drop in who can and, and you know, who has immunity to these orthopox viruses, there's a whole family. So it's likely that that's one of the reasons we're seeing a lot more of these monkeypox cases. But also, you know, people are in closer contact with animals. There's a lot of changes in the ecology and habitat and um, how much people have, you know, interactions even with wild animals. And so that there's just many, many factors feeding into what we're seeing. And I think one thing that's really important to remember is we're hearing about these cases now because of this sort of dramatic rise. But pretty much everybody now that I've spoken to thinks that this sort of transmission has probably been going on at some low level for quite a while, probably years and possibly decades. Apoorva, uh, we, we have clearly COVID fatigue in this country. And now we have something that we're just really starting to hear about monkeypox, which is a scary name for a disease. You know, it's starting, you know, we're just starting to hear that, you know, there's cases in Washington, D.C. There's going to be cases everywhere. What, what can Americans expect from this? Yeah, you know, I'm really sympathetic to the fatigue. I mean, I myself was reporting on COVID and thinking we were going to be done with this kind of panic over viruses for a while. And, you know, while it's interesting on a scientific level, it is really just not great that we're hearing about yet another virus. So what can Americans expect? I think they should expect to see many more of these cases. I think we should expect to hear reports of them from pretty much every state. And we should probably expect to see the numbers rise into the hundreds, if not thousands over the next many weeks to months. But I do think that there are a lot of efforts being made into containing it. And there's a lot of effort being made into training clinicians to um, detect it. And so hopefully we will get a handle on it at some point. And, you know, officials are also doing this, using this strategy called ring vaccination, where you sort of vaccinate all the close contacts of someone who's infected. And that's another very effective way of controlling the spread. It really keeps the numbers down. So I think between all those things, hopefully we will not see it grow into a huge epidemic, even in this country and even elsewhere. Well, vaccines and therapies, as you've written about, are a little bit more problematic than we might have anticipated. There's really very few options and volumes, access is limited. Can you unpack this, including what this might foretell if the outbreak continues to expand and what needs to be done now and if there's any urgency? Yeah, you know, I kept hearing that we had um, multiple vaccines and that we had at least two drugs. But when I looked closer, most of those have problems. There's really just one vaccine that seems relatively safe, and that's called Genios. This was made relatively recently. But, you know, that was tested mainly in animals. We don't have a lot of clinical data on it because it was developed recently recently. 
Um, the older vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, that is a version of what was used to eradicate the disease, has a lot of side effects. That you know, can cause heart problems. It can cause rashes all over the body. And it's actually dangerous for people who even have eczema um, and for pregnant women and immunocompromised people who are, in fact, some of the most high-risk people. So it's not really an option for a lot of people. So that automatically cuts down our options. In many countries, that is the only option available. You know, the U.S. has actually been really good about planning ahead. We partnered with this company, Bavaria Nordic, that makes Genios and made a lot of doses um, available in our stockpile. A lot of those have expired, unfortunately, because this vaccine does have a three-year shelf life. So now we have a few thousand doses at hand, um, but according to the company, the U.S. has about one million doses in all stored both here and at the company that they can ship um, as needed. So we're doing OK on the vaccine front here in this country. In terms of drugs, we have one that seems fairly effective and, and seems fairly safe. And I say fairly because, again, most of what we know is based on animal studies and we just don't know enough at this point. And the other one um, really doesn't seem to work very well, according to one recent study, didn't show much benefit, and it has a lot of toxic side effects. In fact, the FDA slapped a black box warning on that drug. So I don't really think of that as a real option at this point either. Fortunately, we don't seem to be seeing the kind of really severe cases that would need a lot of drug to be rolled out. So we might be okay with ring vaccinations using this newer, safer vaccine, Genios, that I mentioned. So a million doses in our stockpile, if we have an explosion of cases and we're going in and vaccinating all the close contacts, a million should be good for a while, right? Is that, uh, that's what I hear you saying. Yes, it should be good for a while. And you know, beyond that, we actually have um, access to another 14 million or so of this freeze-dried vaccine that the company can make if we really need it fairly quickly. So we should actually be okay in terms of um, vaccinating people for the foreseeable future. What about the big unknowns with this? Can you tell us a little bit about that? When you consider how long we've known about the virus and how much it's been studied, the basic epidemiology, how long you know it's been transmitting outside Africa, we don't know, you know how dangerous it is for children, pregnant women, um, people living with HIV. And then of course the question Hans Kluge raised, you know, can it actually be stopped? Yeah, so there are a lot of unknowns. Um, I think we know more than nothing. We certainly know that it is less severe than smallpox. We know that it is less transmissible than smallpox. And we do know, actually, that it is more dangerous for infants and more dangerous for pregnant women and people who are immunocompromised. Um, for example, in, in Nigeria, there was one death in a 40-year-old man, but that was somebody who was severely immunocompromised. And so we know that the average person who is not elderly and not an infant and not immunocompromised will be fine. So um, the fatality rate is actually fairly low for the kind of the strain of the virus that we're seeing in this, in this outbreak, which is mostly seen in Nigeria. And the fatality rate for that is somewhere around 4%, they think. The one that is from the Democratic Republic of the Congo has a fatality of about 10%. So we, we know that much too. We know that there are multiple versions and they're different in how they manifest and how much risk they carry. And we know a little bit about how it's transmitted. We know that it's transmitted through close contact. It's very similar to smallpox in some ways. It does have a much smaller, you know, what we call R-naught 
the sort of reproductive factor, it's on the scale of one to two, they think, which means each person who's infected may give it to another one or two people. Now, that's the traditional route of exposure that obviously may not have been the case this time because of these raves that we were talking about. But in general, it is not anywhere near as contagious as smallpox or COVID or measles. You know, smallpox has an R0 of three and COVID and measles, they're up in the 12, 15, 16 range. So this is not anywhere near as contagious as all that. So we know all of those things. However, I do take your point, which is we don't know nearly as much as we should, given that it's been around since 1970. And that's really because it's affected mainly African countries. You know, I've been speaking to some African scientists and they are understandably furious because they feel that they've been struggling with this for decades. They've been trying to study it. They've been trying to do surveillance. They've been trying to do sequencing and they've had very little help. And now all of a sudden it's in Europe, it's in North America and everyone's talking about it. And there's this urgency that people have never shown when it's been just in Africa. There is some research. So the CDC has some people working on it. The NIH has some people working on it. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. actually has done quite a bit of research into uh, what the best vaccines are and what the best drugs are. Most of that, though, was done with the worry that smallpox may come back as a bioterrorist threat and not really for monkeypox. We just happen to be benefiting from that fear. But our government's not really talking about this widely yet, certainly at the federal level and I don't really see much at the state level here in Maryland or Virginia or other states that are being affected. So what's the lack of communication in your view from government all about? You know, some of it I see as the unwillingness to panic people. Uh, I think they're they are COVID shy as the population is. And they don't want to worry people unnecessarily. They are doing some education of clinicians so that people know what to look for. The doctors know what to look for. And obviously, you know, we reporters hear from them because they are holding these press briefings every you know week or two, um, sometimes a couple of times a week. You know, the White House is doing that. The CDC is doing that. And we are hearing about you know, how many vaccines we have and how many cases we have and what they're learning. But you're right that it isn't like we had with COVID. And I think maybe that's appropriate for the number of cases that we have at the moment. I think, you know, as the number of cases rise and we learn more about it, if there is cause for worry, I hope anyway, that they will sort of raise the red flag. You know, this is a tricky path to navigate in terms of communicating the public, right? Because there is a danger, as you've pointed out right at the top of this conversation, that this is expanding and it's going to continue to expand but it's manageable. And how do you get people to not be panicked, but to be cognizant of what's happening? I mean, clearly engagement with the, with, with the population of men who have sex with men is terribly important in this period and avoiding stigmatizing them and avoiding the mistakes made in the HIV pandemic starting in the 80s, in which there was stigmatization and marginalization and huge, huge mistakes in the way that it was approached. And that history is, is I hope, informing the way uh, people are approaching this. I also think that you've seen some pretty good scholars emerge as quite vocal and very well-informed experts on this. Um, Anne Rimwan from UCLA, Chikwe Ihekwezu from Nigeria, who's now in, in Berlin at the WHO Data Hub, CDC, the spokespersons 
from CDC have been very, very good on this topic. So I feel a certain comfort level that there are people who really know what they're talking about and have been working on this for 20 years in some cases. Anne and Chikwe have both done groundbreaking research on this. But I, I think it does have a, it does have the, the issue has the potential for further aggravating the divide between the North and the South around access issues and investment in basic research. It can aggravate uh, homophobic tendencies uh, against MSM population. It's going to, again, stress the communication capacities of our public health institutions, which are kind of ragged at the moment. They've stumbled over many of the COVID communications problems right now. I don't see a whole lot of disinformation growing up yet around this. I wanted to ask, do you see a politicization of this the way we've seen every virtually every tool associated with COVID has been politicized and subordinated to that and disinformation kind of clings to the to the mast of all of those efforts. What do you see in that regard here? I do see some, actually. I don't think it's as loud as it was with uh, COVID vaccines. But the second we started talking about monkeypox, I saw a lot of conspiracy theories float online about how, you know, now that COVID is not as big of a deal and that they've come up with this new virus to scare people into submission. Um, there are a few scientists I've spoken to, you know, one who did a tabletop exercise on what a monkeypox outbreak might look like, who was accused of doing all of this deliberately just so that, you know, he can stay in the spotlight. There, there are some strange theories out there. And, you know, as you pointed out, the fact that it is in the gay, bisexual men who have sex with men community, that's been very complicated because, as you pointed out, we do have to let that community know, especially this is Pride Month. There are celebrations all over the world. So it's super important that those continue because those are important. But at the same time, urging those communities to be careful, to be aware, to make sure that they get help as soon as they see anything that might look of concern. Um, but it has meant that as they are trying to raise awareness of that, that there are people who, you know, glom onto that and say, this is another gay man's disease. This is another HIV and I don't need to worry about this, which as we know was wrong, even with HIV. So it actually makes very little sense, but it is easy as we've seen in outbreak after outbreak after outbreak to find someone to blame and then pretend that it's not going to affect you. And I think there is some of that happening, but as you said, you know, we do have a lot of people who have been working on this for decades. You know, they, ha they haven't been in the media much, but there are people in the CDC. I know I, I spoke with Andrea McCollum at the CDC who leads their orthopox virus division. I mean, she's been working on this for decades. And Norman, as you mentioned, um, has been working on this. There are anthropologists and virologists and all kinds of experts who have been doing this work. Not enough. But there are people who know what they're talking about, and it's been really good to see them come out and say, look, this is of concern because we have waning immunity. We need to take it seriously. We've been warning you and you haven't taken us seriously until now, but do that now. And I do think that the government is taking it seriously. Do you see any efforts by the government so far to try to combat some of these false narratives that, you know, yet this is another thing that conspiracy theorists are going to try to politicize? Some, you know, I think that our government is good at reacting to things, but sometimes reacting too late. 
So in this case, you know, they, they're reacting um, with the, the vaccines and the drugs, and they are talking about those things to try and reassure people. But I don't see huge efforts to try and counter the misinformation. And I think that is something we didn't do very well, even with COVID. You know, we waited until all of those myths and those falsehoods had really taken hold before we saw the government start to move. And I really hope that's not the case this time, that they do actually see these things coming from a distance and counter them. One thing I do think they're doing well is being very open with reporters about, you know, what do we have in terms of preventive measures? What do we have in terms of treatments? And updating us regularly on the numbers, even although they are cagey about some of the numbers for security concerns, they say. But overall, I think they have been fairly open. This disease seems like it's just ripe for being something that's going to be politicized. You know, even the name itself is one of those names you can hear just rolling off the tongue of conspiracy theorists. Is there a concern with the people that you're talking with um, about this politicization? There is. And there's, you know, huge, huge worry about stigma, too. I mean, you know, there it's called monkeypox, as you pointed out. We don't you know, we don't even know really if that's the main reservoir. It looks like probably mostly in rodents, which there are many, many, many species of. And so, you know, we don't know exactly where the danger is. And yet people are being very quick to dismiss it as an African disease. It's really unfortunate that, that, you know, we, even the two versions of the virus, we're calling them the West Africa and the Central Africa or the DRC and Nigeria versions. Um, There's some talk about renaming the virus to be more accurate, but also to remove that stigma. But, you know, one thing we've always seen in this community is that they move slowly. And I think if they move very slowly in this case, with renaming it, with countering the stigma, with countering the misinformation, those things will take hold in the population. Do you have any sense of just how easy it might be for this disease to become endemic in animal species here in the United States? You know, we had this incident 2003 with the Gambian rats that were in in a shared facility, holding facility with exotic pets, prairie dogs, and the prairie dogs became infected. This was in Wisconsin, and then almost 50 people in Wisconsin were infected who bought those dogs. Now that was contained, right? It was contained so that it didn't migrate and become endemic. We got very lucky. Yeah, it seems to me it'd be very, a pretty easy turn for this to become endemic within animal species in the United States. And then we're in a completely different sort of context. We are. And actually, I think it is fairly reasonable to think that it is going to become endemic and that it is going to jump into some animal species that are native to you know, the U.S. or to Europe. Some of the governments are um, warning people to stay away from their pets, to isolate their pets if they seem infected, to you know, minimize contact with all animals, really. But there are 2,000 species of rodents and uh, which is about 40% of all mammals. So the fact that it uh, finds a natural reservoir in rodents is not great for us. I mean, you know, one of these expert calls that I was on, somebody raised the very scary uh, specter of, you know, local clinics having trash behind their, uh, behind the clinic, you know, behind the building and rats getting into the trash um, and getting infected that way from medical waste. And so there are a lot of different ways that it could end up in um, animals. I do think that people are worrying about that, but I don't hear them talking about it enough. You know, in a couple of these calls, reporters have asked CDC officials about that. And, you know, they've pointed to that 2003 outbreak. It was actually in a few different Midwestern states 
and you know, it spread to about 70 some people. And we got lucky that time that it didn't become endemic, that it didn't actually get into anyone else. Uh, but I hear them citing that as the explanation for why we shouldn't necessarily worry too much about it being endemic. And I think that's not really a reasonable way to think about it because just because we got lucky once doesn't mean we will again. To go back to what's happening in Africa and the endemic countries, I would expect that for many of the same reasons that we're saying this, this we're seeing these these out these cluster outbreaks in outside of Africa that you could expect to see a pretty significant expansion coming out of DRC and Nigeria and elsewhere, where the numbers, the reported numbers have been very very high. Right, fifteen hundred cases in DRC in the last year. I noticed that WHO, you know, which has been quite vocal on this, has stock has about I think two and a half million vaccine in stockpiles, but has gone out and talked to other donor governments with stockpiles and gotten pledges of something on the order of thirty million, if I remember correctly. That suggests to me that they're they're looking not at a demand of that scale in Europe or North America. They're look they're thinking about this in the endemic countries. Those are actually smallpox vaccines, and those were also being stored for bioterrorism purposes, not for monkeypox. Um, and all of those doses, you know, the 2.5, I think, million doses that are being held in Switzerland, and then the 30-some that are in five donor countries, those are all stockpiles of the WHO. They're just distributed in different parts of the world. Um, and those were meant for use in case there is a smallpox outbreak. But those are old doses, and some of those have probably been around for decades, so we don't even know how effective those are. And in theory, the WHO is helping these countries with testing and with vaccines and drugs, but the Nigerian, um, the head of the Nigerian CDC that I spoke to said, you know, they were getting some help, but not nearly enough. Um, that's so these, these smallpox vaccines, this is the AMCOM? ACAM 2000. The ACAM 2000 vaccine, which you had talked about and, and written about as not appropriate for many, many uses. So that really doesn't give you a whole lot of protection. And those those stockpile arrangements are really about the possibility of bioterrorism and smallpox. It's not about preparing for monkeypox. It's not. We, we really haven't been preparing for monkeypox. We just are getting lucky because there was some preparation for smallpox. But, you know, now that there is this outbreak. A lot of countries in Europe have been putting orders into Bavarian Nordic, which is the manufacturer of that newer vaccine. And, uh, you know, I, they hope to be able to make something like 30 million vaccines in a year and maybe more if it's necessary, you know, partnering with other companies. So there is more thinking about how to prepare for larger monkeypox outbreaks, but it's all sort of you know, retroactive. And we weren't really expecting any of this to happen. How do you grade the performance of the U.S. government in this period? And how do you grade, and, and included within that, of course, would be sort of the, the National Security Council directorate. Raj Punjabi has been pretty vocal for some time, pretty proactive. How do you judge how CDC has been responding to this? And then the other major institutions, WHO, obviously very important, but some of the European countries and, and some of the key African countries are all pretty much on their toes and doing things and expressing opinions on this. How do you grade what's happened up to now? In the U.S., I think they've actually done okay. I would give them, you know, six or seven out of 10, just in terms of how quickly they've communicated, how well they are talking to the public about some of this, these things. 
but I do see some, some secrecy still. I do see some reluctance to talk about real risk factors. I can't really get into too many details yet, but you know, they are holding on to some pieces of information that they really shouldn't. And, you know, in Nigeria, they are trying to sequence samples. We actually need a lot of the information that they have. And I haven't heard too much about helping them get that information out, you know, sequence information, for example. Um, I'm, I haven't heard enough about that kind of international collaboration that could get us the information that we need. The WHO has done a great job, again, of, you know, as they did with COVID, of being out there and talking about things and uh, organizing this, this two-day research webinar, for example. But again, they also tend to talk about the things that they are most comfortable with, and they, they tend to not even address the things that, that they're unsure about. And that's something that we saw with COVID and something we're seeing now where, you know, they don't apply what we call the precautionary principle, taking precautions, even if we don't know everything quite yet. I don't think they're great at that. Give me one projection. Where do you think we're going to be on this when we hit the fall? What's it going to look like? I think in the fall, we'll have at least a few thousand cases, probably many thousands of cases worldwide. And I think they will be all over the world. I think this virus has probably already gotten everywhere. But hopefully by then we will be learning how to contain it better than we, we know now and getting to the end of it. Uh, I hope that we're not still at the peak of this outbreak by then. We typically end our podcast with ask, by asking our guests, what is the thing that keeps you optimistic or gives you optimism going forward? What makes you optimistic about monkeypox? Which is a strange question to ask somebody, but I know, but... <laughs> Yeah, I guess the thing that makes me optimistic is the number of very smart people who have come together very quickly to talk about what we know. You know, the WHO last week had a two-day seminar on research priorities. You know, what do we need to know? How are we going to know it? Um, what studies are already being done? And that gave me some, some hope that, you know, there are things being done very quickly to get on top of this. And I heard some very smart people talk about what we already know and where we need to go. And so hopefully if governments take it seriously and we most of all really internalize the message that we learned from COVID that you know, nobody is safe until everybody is, that, that needs to happen, I think, at this time. And I see them talking about it a bit sooner than they did with COVID. So let's hope that they did actually learn that message. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Laurel Vibazon and managed by Claire Dannenbaum. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.